Hey everybody, welcome to Standby for Tones and our podcast. Today, you got me, Isaac Baker, and your favorite guy, Mr. Sam Schwab. Hello. How we doing? So good. How are you? I'm not too bad. Yeah. Yeah. You ready to to tell them what we're doing with life? Absolutely. (laughs) I think this is a pretty exciting one, man, because this is going to be... We're kind of Star Warsing it, going a little bit backwards <laughs> here, and uh, kind of doing our intro more than anything right now. Then we'll finish off with a little bit of a lesson, you know. But I want them to know us. Yeah, I want them sure. to know who we are, why we're doing it, what our lives are like, what we do, all of the fun things. So all the fun you know, things. We got a got a little bit of a story uh, to tell on both our ends, right? Absolutely. So Lots of stories. It'll, it'll be good. I mean, like. There's so many things we've done in this last year that are very remarkable more than anything. I think that we've accomplished a lot. You know, this has been kind of a three-year-in-the-making journey to get where we're at. I mean, lighted studio, nice kind of facility, you know, lots of things. We've, we've done a lot and a lot of sacrifice, a lot of good times, a lot of, you know, <laughs> late nights. and <laughs> A lot of late nights. A lot of late nights and a lot of... A lot of people hanging out in my house while I'm going to bed. That's right. <laughs> so, yeah, no, we've, like you said, we've done a ton. Um, we've got lots more coming. Yeah. But we're, like you said, little Star Wars. We've, we kind of did this podcast once, but we're redoing it because I'm way too much of a perfectionist and I didn't like how the first one turned out. So we're doing it again, but Why that's not? okay. So we today, today we're again getting into this podcast stuff. Wanted to, just talk to you guys about who we are, what we've been through in life, and yep. uh, yeah, and then like you said, get into uh, some education there on the end of this one. So yeah, it'll be good, man. Uh, the big thing that I want to, and I'm going to look into the camera for this one to stare at you guys if you're watching via video. Uh, please, if you feel like supporting a small business or a growing business, we have lots of things available from textbooks to applications to our website to our courses and everything like that. And we want to be able to continue to bring these things to you guys. So uh, if we can get your support, help us grow, do these things. We're fairly pr- well-priced uh, below the, the the industry standard right now for a lot of our stuff. And, you know, we want to, you know, we'll talk about why we do that and, uh, you know, here in a little bit, but I just want you guys to know that we have a book, we have a flight log, we have all these things that are really cool. You can find them on our website, you can find them on Amazon, anywhere you really kind of look. You can type in the business name, you can type in, type in Isaac or my name um, in Amazon, and it'll come up. There's so many things that we have that we can offer you guys, and we really want you guys to be prepared for not only for your tests and quizzes and jobs and everything like that, but for patient care more uh, first and foremost. I mean, like. You know, a a certificate is a piece of paper that shows that you can regurgitate information, but we want to make sure that you guys know how to, you know, be able to perform in the field more than anything. Yeah, and actually understand it, right? It's not, you just went through a class and to go through the class, but actually went to go learn something. Yeah. And I think we've presented stuff in a way that, again, you can actually, actually learn something, take something away from that. Um, You know, we're not afraid to to throw our experiences out there, our mistakes, things that we've seen. Um, so no, absolutely learn from that kind of stuff. And that's, that's the whole goal. Yeah. I've made so many mistakes, man. Oh yeah. <laughs> no, we and all do. And that's, but that's, I mean, that's part of teaching is yeah. being able to have that experience and being able to say, you know, don't do this. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, 
Mistakes are good things. As long as you <laughs> work in a culture where just culture is an actual thing where you can not be afraid to bring these things up and, you know, be able to make learning points out of it and then be able to have enough of a, a big boy panties on exactly. to be able to, you know, promote your mistake and help other people learn from it. Yeah. I think that's the biggest shift in our industry right now is is losing some of that nature where we can take those learning mistakes and promote them in a good, healthy way because people are so afraid of, you know, getting their feelings hurt. And they are. And we touched on that on the on the last podcast a little bit. Yeah. But no, and for you, I mean, don't be afraid that, like, to take criticism. It's okay. Yeah. Learn. Yes, it is very good. But off that subject, let's talk about us. I agree, and I think that you should go first. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So tell I, us about yourself, tell, Mr. Sam. Okay, so my name is Sam. Uh, I was born and raised in Idaho, and... Uh, you know, I've lived here for pretty much my entire life, uh, just in kind of different cities and kind of found my my home here in South Central Idaho in uh, beautiful Twin Falls. It's been a, a great place to grow a career, grow a business, you know, continue flying for a really cool agency. Like there's so many cool things. Um, I kind of started off my life in the fire EMS world, started at a, vol- a paid volunteer fire service hated fire absolutely hated <laughs> it and it's not a knock against anybody else i mean like we make our firefighter jokes and things course, like that or, i mean we have to right it's just like we make cop jokes and all the things absolutely but you know i hated running in or like going into a burning i only did it two times in the five years that i was with that service because it was just so low volume yeah i hated every second of it <laughs> but the ambulance stuff is just where i kind of found my jam found my home i was an emt straight out of high school which i think we kind of talk about in another episode of uh you know learning how to grow and how we had to put up with the 18 year old straight out of high school and how to right. groom them and train them and and do all the right things i mean we're all there Went to paramedic school in Boise, uh, actually specifically Nampa. Uh, went to College of Western Idaho under the direction of Doug Jay and Dexter Hunt. Two really big industry leaders at the time. They kind of, you know, really took over and got paramedicine into Ada County. I mean, like, that's really what their their whole goal was. It started as the Ada County program, turned into the CWI program. <clears throat> Unfortunately, that program is no longer... They got old, they got, they retired, you know, Dexter had a kidney transplant, all the, all the fun things. And, you know, there's a, there's a lot of growth and really amazing things that came from that program. I feel very lucky that, you know, both of my instructors had like 70 years of field experience between the two of them. I think still, I think Doug's still actually working in like his seventies and it's like, man, like you ever going to give it up, (laughs) 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 but, but I don't think he ever will, but. You know, I'm very, very blessed in the the nature of the education world that I got into. Did a short uh, stint as a uh, system-based hospital educator for a large EMS system. Uh, My life just kind of took me in a different different pathway, which is completely fine. You know, know, things work out the way that they they need to, and I wanted to to progress my career, and I was kind of stuck, and, you know, Monday through Friday was not for me. Yeah, I, I, I feel you there. Yeah, Monday through Friday is, you know, once you've been in this industry, this is all I've ever known too. I mean, like I've only ever known shift work and going to Monday through Friday with a new kid and all these other things was so hard. (laughs) It was, (laughs) it was the hardest thing uh, I've probably done in a long time. And uh, so I was just like, I should go fly. 
went to a smaller agency out in Nevada. They turned into this massive conglomerate of an agency uh, owned by a big healthcare system, which it sounds like they're all doing really well. I'm very happy for them. And, you know, I'm just glad to be home. Yeah. Glad to be back in, uh, into a three aircraft service and, you know, kind of have that, uh, that opportunity just to walk to work <laughs> instead of driving hour and hour, hour to two hours to work every day. So, you know, there's a lot of things. Got a beautiful daughter. Love doing that uh, um, side of things. And by dad life, it's uh, super fun. All the things we get to do. Zoos, biking, you know. Yeah, I was going to ask you what uh, besides work, what do you do outside of work? What do what you guys do like to do? What do we like to do? You know, the outside of work side of things is it's fun. Like we do. I do this outside of work a lot, um, which is not really a job for me because it's fun. Um, our whole job's fun, but you know, hanging out with the kid, hanging out with a girlfriend, um, we spend a lot of time together. We go to, go to the zoo, you know, we go biking, we go walking, we go hiking, we camp, we fish, we travel, we do all the things that I wasn't able to do on a Monday through Friday schedule. Right. And, you know, I get to live this life with a beautiful, tiny little human that is growing up to be this just kind of badass. I mean, like she's going <laughs> to, she's going to be the biggest tomboy in the world. A hundred percent. I mean, all she ever talks about is wanting to skateboard and do all these other things. And you know, that's fun for me. That makes my dad heart happy. She's not going to be afraid to beat a little boy up. Someday, <laughs> so that's, <laughs> that's what I'm excited about. I believe that. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, man, you know, the, the home life is good. Can't complain, you know, been through a lot in the, in this world and, you know, not one to, you know, compare stories with other people, but you know, it builds you and makes you stronger and go through things. And it's a, it's a humbling, humbling life I've led to get to where I am. And I'm very, very lucky to be where I'm at. And, you know, we have a lot of cool friends, a lot of cool guests that'll be coming on and it's just going to be fun. You know, that's just kind of me in a nutshell. I I love, I love flight medicine. I love being on the ambulance still, but you know, I love, being home with my kid. I mean, like I just find this really good work life balance now where I get to live my life. It's not every single day looking for hours, doing all this stuff. I had to grow up and learn how to manage finances and all these things and be okay with it. Uh, talking about flight medicine, how long have you had your critical care? Um, that's a good question. I think I'm going on seven years now. Six years, six or seven years. Um, this might be six, year six, but uh, it's been quite a while. Uh, there, you know, I I skipped the FPC, went to the critical care just for the fact that I was one of only I think eleven in the entire state of Idaho to have obtained it and passed the exam, and that was just more bragging rights, gotcha. <laughs> more gotcha. more than anything. Because I mean, like, I, I'll go, I'll go get my my flight paramedic license or a certificate this summer or something like that. But, you know, it's just one of those things that, uh, you know, six, I can't believe it's been six years of, you know, critical care flight and ground ambulance and transports. And now where I'm at, it's, it's awesome. What do you think about three on the spot here? Yeah. I guess difference in medicine as far as going from paramedic to flight medic or critical care. Oh dude, it is night and day different. 100%. I mean, like, we get into this, and I see this a lot, especially in new people, where they think that they're going to get in an airplane or a helicopter, and it's just going to be just an ambulance with wings or just an ambulance with rotor blades. Like, 
but it's not. It's so much more than that. It's critical thinking. It's ventilator management. It's acid base management. It's full body system management where in the paramedic world, I see this kind of quote. It's like uh, the EMS providers are there to keep them or to keep them alive for a short duration of time. The hospital's there to keep them from dying for the, for the duration of basically their care. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that makes sense. But at the same time, we could up our game in the paramedic level a whole lot. I mean, like we shouldn't just be there to put a bandaid on it. We should be there to get the process started before we get to the hospital. Don't have to make a diagnosis. We don't have to do these things, but the old days of throwing them in an ambulance Diesel bolus, getting him to the hospital shouldn't be a thing anymore. Scene time shouldn't be tracked, in my opinion. It'll, I mean, for TSEs, yes. Yeah. But your standard other things like your severe sepsis and all these other patients that are really actually critical and the movement matters, like, you need to be, you know, taking care of these patients more than anything. So, you know, I feel like this, this is a... A really, it's a really tough question because I mean, there's so many factors that go into it, especially like protocol sets, state licensures, all these other things. Like when I was flying in Nevada, we couldn't do any invasive like decompressions of like the chest wall. Where in Idaho we can, yeah, Utah we can. So I mean, it's like those little nuances, like where they still keep this tight grasp around you to limit what you can do when you know you can do it to better a patient, but by state mandate you can't do anything like that's a that's a crappy place to be in my man <laughs> like, <laughs> no i like, i agree it totally is i it's hard to uh combat that too yeah but i mean you you play a huge mental game of like do i lose my licensure over doing something that i know i should do and can fix the situation yeah or does this patient you know deteriorate more before we get to the hospital i mean like there's so many little gray areas in it. That's why EMS is so hard for some people because it's so great all the time. Correct. But I guess back to the, to the main question you asked is like, you know, this world is so different because we're dealing with a majority of the time, the sickest of the sick patients. There's a lot of EMS professionals out there that will stay on the ambulance for the rest of their life because they think that we don't do anything, but they have no idea what we do. Like, like they, and, and I may have been there at one point. I know I was probably there at one point. Like you don't do the airways. You don't do this stuff. I don't give two shits about the airways and doing that. I mean, like those things are fun to do, but where I really find my jam is that true nuts and bolts, critical care thinking of, you know, blood pressure management, titration of meds, you know, ventilator strategies to keep them oxygenating, ventilating well and all yeah. of these things that encompass true patient care, not mm-hmm. just putting that Band-Aid on it. Absolutely. It's good to be, uh, yeah, it's it's a different dynamic, right? Coming yeah. from the annoying person that's always dropping off patients, right? In the, yeah. in, the, in the eyes of the hospital to like, thank goodness you're here. Like, get this patient out of here because we mm-hmm. can't do it anymore. Um, it's an interesting dynamic, yeah. right? But no, I, th- I think for, for me, the, uh, yeah, the, the difference in level is crazy. Like, unfortunately, as in anything you do, like, you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. So being able to to have some of those eye-opening, like, okay, this is 
this is what we do for these critical patients, you know, treating mm-hmm. different things like head bleeds and, you know, like you talked about the hypertension. I mean, how many medications do you carry that you treat hypertension with now? It's yeah. like there's a ton before. I mean, maybe, maybe you gave someone some low pressure or labetalol, you know, maybe a little nitro for that hypertensive crisis. But, yeah. but now actually having like strict guidelines for, okay, we need to keep these patients in these certain numbers. Yeah is uh that's totally different yeah and then i think just the the further understanding of what we can do with medications itself i mean like as a ground paramedic i never would have put two and two together that to get a pure alpha response in like an epinephrine infusion side of things like yeah when we're giving epi one to one thousand for an anaphylactic to get that pure alpha response we're giving like anywhere between 300 and 500 micrograms of epinephrine to get that pure alpha response correct and then having to translate that into an infusion where you know if you hit too much beta one or beta two and you get too much smooth muscle relaxation you can do the opposite effect i mean like and not knowing like how titratable that medication is and how much you actually have to give to get these responses out of these medications and like having those true understandings is is really a big thing that sets it apart as well and you know, you can dive into cardiac stuff all we want and things like that. But, I mean, like, there's so many things that go unknown until you really make that jump over. Yes, there is. What are your <laughs> thoughts on, uh, I think about this a lot, of admin or supervisory staff on ground ambulances being required to have an advanced certification? Well, I think it's a great idea. It's, ooh. It's difficult. Um, it's, you know, obviously it's going to depend on your service. Yeah. But, no, I mean, I feel like that's why they're there, is to be able to show up on a scene and have that advanced knowledge. Yeah. Right? I mean, I remember as a ground medic, like, I mean, I obviously had, you have your favorite supervisors, people you want to see show up. Yeah. Um, you know, one of my favorite, Jim Massey, who uh, was one of my instructors. Mm-hmm. Um in uh, when I went to school, I mean, when, when Jimmy showed up, you knew it was going to be like, everything's going to be okay. Yeah. Like there was, there was no question about it. He was like, okay, whew, we're going to get through this. Jimmy's here. Life's good. Yeah. So no, I absolutely think that they, they should have some sort of, I think advanced cert, advanced knowledge, advanced at knowledge least. in, in practice as well. Yeah. It'd be, it'd be awesome. Yeah. I just, you know, I, I run into this every now and again where, you know, you see people get promoted and do all these things that we all look to do, which are great, but then they get gobbled up into, you know, the admin role and all of these other things. And then it's like they show up on a scene and your paramedics a hundred steps ahead of them and they're trying to catch up to you when you're supposed to be the one there, you know, providing that kind of comfort le- buffer level for these critically ill patients yeah. and, and helping these, these newer, younger paramedics out. And it just kind of made that shift that that doesn't seem to happen all the time anymore. And I mean, like, I can't speak for every agency and I'm not speaking any about any specific agency. It's just kind of, <coughs> excuse me, as a national thing, is that something we should look at? Well, I think absolutely. Again, it's yeah. going to be. That's going to be a hard sell. Yeah. But, but enough about me. Enough about my life. Talked <laughs> about my kid, girlfriend, the area I live in. Tell us about you. 
Yeah. Why, what makes you you? Well, um, let's kind of segue from from what we were talking about there about that that critical, you know, having your your leaders be that critical care, and and doing that kind of stuff. I mean, that's one of the reasons that I jumped over to the helicopter, right? I mean, I've had my critical care for yeah, it's about seven years, I think. Mm-hmm. Seven, eight I think years? you're a year before, Maybe year eight, or two before remember. me. So, you know, went and got my flight medic. Um, intending on going to fly someday. and But also, again, just wanted to learn. And then the, the biggest reason was completely selfish, was seeing other people <laughs> that said, you know, they're, gonna, they're going and doing this critical care course and all this stuff. And I'm like, yeah, you're not, you're not getting that before me. So... Getting out there and, and get getting competitive, it done. huh? Oh, always, definitely, right? And like we talked about, seeing that it's great having Jimmy show up and knowing everything's okay, right? Watching some of my students, right? Yeah, um, be on the helicopter and start taking care of patients. Show up and they know more than me now, like, and they're doing <laughs> this stuff, like, like, oh man, like, okay. It's, uh, it's time. Like <laughs> I, I can't, I can't handle that. So <laughs> yeah, it's very competitive. Um, want to know, I would just want to know more. Right? I, I mm-hmm. want to be, you know, the best, not that, not that I am. I absolutely know I'm not, but when I see somebody doing something great, like, okay, I want to know what they're doing so I can do the same thing. Yeah. Like I want that same knowledge base. I want that kind of skill set. So, uh, but for me anyway, yeah, grew up, Similar area, starting with uh, my agency at very young age of 20, Yeah, right? Not uh, when I started, like, the insurance, they weren't going to let me get hired because <laughs> I wasn't 21. Oh, so that's they didn't want to cover me for uh, for insurance purposes. They didn't let me drive, want me to drive the ambulance, stuff like that. So luckily my group fought for me. Uh, they were able to get me hired. Um, and I was doing that while I was going through paramedic school. So mm-hmm. I got hired as advanced EMT. So did my basic EMT out of high school. Um, initially, when I went in, had no idea what I wanted to do. Yeah, I thought about going into radiology. I was like, okay, I'll I'll try that out. That seems cool. Mm-hmm. And then one of the prereqs was either CNA or EMT. So yeah, definitely went the EMT route. I knew I didn't want to be a CNA. No, thank you. And that's when my uh, met one of my mentors, great supervisor, like talked about Jim Massey who I knew growing up, but I didn't actually know what he did. Yeah. So once uh, I went to that EMT program, I mean, he scooped me up and got me super interested, got me right into the our quick response unit where I volunteered, you know, as an EMT and would do ride-alongs with him. And it was like, okay, yeah, this is, mm-hmm. this is cool stuff. Go yeah. out and just riding with supervisor before I was hired. Um, he got me way, way interested in it. So, Thanks a lot, Jimmy, for getting me into this. <laughs> but uh, it's a blessing yeah. and a curse, right? <laughs> it is. Oh. So, no, I went to paramedic school. Like I said, I got hired when I was in medic school, and uh, after after medic school, got got hired on, um, and have been been with uh, my company for like seventeen years. So, yeah. uh, which this place, I mean, awesome protocols. Medical directors have been amazing. Yep. The the stuff that we get to do, you know, the high high level medicine, high level care has mm-hmm. been completely awesome. Yeah. So, you know, I think as ground EMS, even where we're at, like 
doing what a lot of only critical care agencies get to do. Mm-hmm. So it has been insanely awesome. Um, and we just have a great mix of, of everything. So you get some long distance transports, you get to go long distance scene calls as well. That, yeah. You know, you might be with somebody for a half an hour that you're actually treating them and taking care of them. What's and your, uh, what's your longest, uh, transport you've had for a 911 call for a 911 call? Um, at least an hour. Yeah. Yeah. We have some, some areas that we go to that you're just driving an hour yeah. away. So those are, those can be hairy. Those can be. And, uh, they're fun too. And, and a lot of times you get those calls and that's when, you know, weather's bad and you can't get a helicopter yep. or anything like that. But yeah, I think my, my longest one was out in three Creek yeah. way down South. Yep. Like, way out there crossing <laughs> the salmon dam in the middle of winter time oh god it is yeah. terrible but uh but yeah uh what do you do outside at work or no i have another question because yeah. not only i mean like our agency's badass that Correct. we were i mean we've got ground we've got ground critical care we've got flight critical care fixed wing rotor wing and not only that what about rope? What about rescue stuff? We have a huge oh, ass man. canyon right out our yes, back door. Do. I mean, so that <laughs> 486 feet deep. I don't even know how wide it is, but I mean like big enough to have a gigantic, like almost suspension type bridge going over it. Like, yep. Yeah, right. no. So the snake river Canyon is awesome. Yeah. And, um, because of that, where we're at, we get a lot of people who get stuck in stupid places. Yeah. All right. We have the, the prime bridge, which is one of the only, one out of two, I think, places in the USA that you can base jump off of. Yeah, right? legally, a right. Legal, a structure that you can base jump off of. And the thing about here is, like, I mean, you can base jump 24-7, 365. Yep. Happens it's, all the time. It's all on you. It doesn't matter. You don't, there's no permits. There's no get permission. Yep. I mean, we have base jumpers every day. So, yeah. surprisingly, we don't see a lot of them. They do actually really good. So, so with that... People in the canyon, I mean, we have to be able to get to them. Yeah. So we're super specialized in that we get to do a lot of rope rescue. So we get this high angle rope rescue and we have this truly elite team mm-hmm. that gets to not only make patient access, you know, somebody who's 200 feet down and stuck or hurt, whatever it is. Not only do we get to go do rope stuff, but now we're doing critical care on the side of a cliff yeah it's it's awesome it i mean from somebody who's not a part of that that team as an outsider looking in like it is super cool it's i mean like it's one of those things that it's like ah, maybe i'll do it someday but like you know you really have to have that true dedication going into it because you guys are going all the time training all the time and you guys are doing competitions too still or yeah we have um we're looking at a few i think for the next couple of years Mm -hmm. but no we've been like you said insanely blessed and um the fact that you know our hospital-based ems service allows us to go do (laughs) canyon rescues and get in a helicopter and go fly 30 minutes away or 40 minutes away and and do all this rescue stuff is is insane yeah that doesn't happen that they will let us take members of the high angle rescue team in the helicopter to go fly throughout idaho to help on some of these big scenes is insane. 
Like, yeah, no, it, it totally is. It makes no sense, especially from a financial point, if you look at them. I mean, there's rescues. I don't even want to know how much money they spent on, Yeah, you know, getting people out of places, using multiple helicopters, shuffling multiple crews. Yeah, extrication equipment, yeah. all sorts of stuff. I mean, like, I do feel lucky for where we work. Oh, I mean, absolutely. like, just for the fact that, you know, they, I think that uh, they kind of view it as, like, a really good selling point at the same time. Like, we have these capabilities. We have these people that are specialty trained. Like, yeah, they have the trust in us to be able to go out and do these things, which is really huge. And our admin has the trust in us as well. I mean, as much as every admin likes to look at numbers, they still like us going out and doing the best patient care possible in any situation. Correct. Yeah, no, they're they're super supportive and can't say enough about them. Yeah. But, uh, no, being able to do that stuff's awesome. And like I said, we do, it does take a lot of time, training. I mean, every month, multiple, multiple trainings every month. So you got to dedicate a lot of time and effort to it. Yeah. So appreciate my family who puts up with me, <laughs> right? So wife, two kids, um, who are you know, absolutely love them, right? They yeah. pu- they push me, uh, and they let me go do this stuff. So can't say enough about them. Um, and as far as yeah, what do you guys do out? What do you do outside of work? We got yeah, we kind of got a little bit of the glimpse of the inside of Isaac, but. <laughs> Hopefully not. (laughs) (laughs) No, we, uh, no, for the most part, I mean, that's my favorite thing is just hanging out, hanging out with family at home. Yeah. And doing whatever. Yeah. Playing Xbox. Yep. With uh, the wife or the kids or all of us. Yep. Right. Doing that. I can just see your wife just standing there screaming at a TV, trying to play a game (laughs) at some point. No, maybe my son, not her. (laughs) She's, she's pretty chill. She's good, but she's chill. Yeah. But, uh, no. And then for us, family wise, I mean, typically if we're going to do anything, we're, we've we've gone to Disney. I don't know how many times. I can't even imagine the amount of of money that has been spent. And I mean, like, not so much a lodging because you guys had all that that family fun type stuff. But I mean, like, for a regular person, it'd be in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. What? Even Not even close. No, no. Okay. No, you just gotta know how to do Disney, man. Yeah. That's uh, I'll do a podcast on that. How to do <laughs> Disney properly? But that'd uh, probably be her best selling <laughs> podcast. <laughs> no, it, it's uh, fun. I mean, yeah, sure, we spent money there, but we're not like huge go out and camp somewhere yeah type of people so you know hey i don't have an rv payment so that's why yeah that's that's easy way to look at you don't it, have right? a camper taking up 90 percent of your garage in the winter time like i do that's right so no we, we love doing that kind of stuff um probably taking a break for a little bit working on doing some else i don't know yeah. what we're gonna do yet but six flags uh, time six flags now but uh no disneyland disney world's been awesome i mean the fact that we've gotten to go so many times has been it's been great yeah and that's another thing i love about like our job mm-hmm. is you know work two or three days a week depending on on how things are going so yeah. you take a couple of days off and there you go you got a week and a half off yep so it's awesome it I mean, is like and especially with our schedule now i mean like i didn't think i was going to love it at first until i you know had my first good stretch of days off and now i'm like okay I can see, I can see the upside to this right now. So absolutely. Yeah. So Disney dad, all the things, all the things. Yep. Um, like I said, worked for my ground agency for like 17 years, been flying for a few years. Mm -hmm. Um, was, did a 
big stint at our local college here where I uh, got to teach with uh, another one of my favorite people, Cordy Cox, who was my EMS instructor. Yeah. And, I mean, Gordy is insanely, insanely awesome. Love the guy. Uh, when he left, he went to Coamps, where, I mean, he was in charge of, you know, making sure everybody's staying up on what they're supposed yeah. to, being in charge of accreditation for um, all the schools in the mm-hmm. across the U.S., So, which I think is an important thing. Um, accreditation is huge. It is, and I think that, again, I mean, we can get into this. This can be its own podcast eventually, but I mean, we have to have programs that are accredited and making sure they're meeting requirements, stuff like that. That's the only way we're going to progress. Yeah, we know, don't in our industry, right? Mm-hmm. The heart. I mean, like watching some of those local paramedic schools that we had in in Idaho that were like the four month accelerated paramedic programs fold was probably a good thing. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there were just paramedic mills at that time. Okay. Yeah, which which we don't need. I mean, I feel like yeah, we'll we'll always have a shortage. We'll always need people, but it doesn't mean that we just we don't cut quality. Exactly, don't cut quality. And this is we need to we need to push this industry forward. As far as you know, look what nursing's done. Look yeah. at they're light years ahead of us. They in, are in the grand scheme of like the recognition in the healthcare industry recognition and then the obvious factor of pay as well pay, right so yeah and their ability for movement i mean like we i mean like oh, we, yeah. we go to and or and pa school but i mean like you know they have pa nurse practitioner crna all of these other you know subspecialties that they have are able to be able to you know transition into i mean like it requires schooling all all these things but once you're at some point in the top of the paramedic world you're there Correct. Until you move somewhere else or go to admin, which is not fun. <sighs> but yeah, I don't. I appreciate you, admin guys. I don't want to be. <laughs> a, I don't always like you, but yeah. you. Uh, nope, couldn't do it. So yep. as, as many times as I sit there and go, really, yeah. really, like <laughs> this is what we're going to talk about right now, and then it actually works out in the end. It's like you know, it's a good thing. We have them there for a reason. We do, and like I said, I appreciate that. It's not my not my role. No, but, uh, no, that's, I mean, that's me pretty much. So yeah. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what we're doing? Like why, why are we doing standby for tones? What, what's making us tick? Yeah. So I've had, had the idea for a long time and just hate EMS education. Yep. So hated watching the same stupid videos and how they did, you know, learning, online learning and stuff like that was just terrible. Yeah. So um, when I'm, if I'm going to have to sit there and watch something and do something every year, like at least let me get something out of it. Yeah. I don't need the same thing that I learned in EMT school, right? Don't I don't need to be taught that again. I do stuff i do acls bls mm-hmm. bowels nrp all of that stuff i get the majority of your basic kind of stuff yeah right that we all do so the have to haves the right? have to haves yeah which i get i understand it um but like give me something that's actually going to be beneficial to me mm-hmm. that i can use to help my patients out right 
I actually want to learn, right? Yeah. Keep moving forward, right? If you don't do that, then I mean, I don't know. I, I guess you see, you know the people. Yeah, you know who it is who sits there who they're happy with exactly what they're doing. They're not going to advance. Yep, they're not going to learn more, move stuff forward. Right, they're comfortable. I don't, I don't like being comfortable. No. So, yeah, no, I think that's that's huge and you know you hit on a lot of our good points there of like why we're you know truly doing this i think you know we are able to bring some fun into good education i mean it's all evidence-based all of the good things and you hit really on one of the big points i think one of the the other big points that is huge for us too is i hate because we don't make a lot of money right i mean like i'd like to say that at some point we'll make a lot of money but we don't make a lot of money I hate to see people getting taken advantage of to try and progress their field, especially when they're going to go from an EMS job on an ambulance and make less money to go fly, right? Yep. You're going to be required to pay out the butt for a critical care course, then testing fees. I mean, you're out $1,000 right there. Not many people just have $1,000 to go take a test, right? And I think, you know, where we're able to either break it down into payments, you know, cost effectiveness and things like that is one of the biggest things, because if I wasn't able to find a, you know, like a discount code or something like that, I don't know if I'd be here. Like, I mean, like I was broke, like broke, broke for a long time. And then, you know, being able to, to get into a class for super cheap, which I haven't seen yet again, was, was huge. I mean, like, you know, because I didn't want to do it because I didn't want to shell out $500 for the class and another $400 for a test. Like, absolutely. You know, it just, it blows my mind seeing some of the the refresher courses and even just for like EMT and paramedic where they're like, EMT refresher, $500. It's like, you do realize that th- that person makes like $12 an hour, twelve fifty because that's the minimum wage in Idaho right now. But like, you know, yeah, they're not going to be able to cover a five hundred dollar recertification. No, and that's that's if they're not working for a volunteer agency as well. Exactly. I mean, goodness. Yeah, they have to be able to get their hours somehow, and it's yeah. got to be cost effective. Yep. And I think that's just kind of like one of the biggest driving factors, besides you know getting our good education out for me, is hopefully being able to keep people in our industry for a little bit less. Absolutely. And you know. It's a pain in the butt. Don't get me wrong. This has been a massive headache some days, <laughs> but I love every second of it. Oh, for sure. No, I we've spent ridiculous amount of time. Yeah. Um, Accreditation just in general makes oh me gosh. want to like bash my head into a desk. Absolutely. But, <laughs> you know, it's just, it's just part of it though. I mean, like we chose to do this. It's fun. And uh, we hope we get to bring this to, to all the people. Yeah. And uh, just kind of getting back to where we... Um, I mean, how we became standby for tones, you know, yeah. like I said, I had the, my idea that the things I wanted to do with stuff. And then, um, when you got the educator job after you had to deal with all of that yeah, nonsense, you know, I, I think you, you called me up and, and had an idea mm-hmm. and it tied right into, to where I was going with it. And yeah. then I was like, all right, well, let's sit down and have a conversation. Yep. So was it a week later after I texted you and <laughs> we're we're sitting in an office with our our kind of business developed guy and you know good old Tad he does a lot a lot for us and uh you know and sitting there filling out you know 
mapping boards and project ideas and all this stuff. And here it is. Like, yeah. it only took three years later, but hey, it's okay. <laughs> three years of quality, though, is it the biggest been. thing. It has been. It's hard to. That first year was like, are we actually going to do this? Or like, like, but year two ideas. and three yeah. was was where we hit it home. It is. I mean, we have a book. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Never thought I'd say that. Yeah. So. Yeah. Published authors and you know, wow. it's, it's huge for us. It is. So. And it sells good. I mean, like we're getting sales almost every day mm-hmm. and you know, I think people are starting to enjoy it. I haven't seen any reviews on it yet, but <laughs> I know there's I a couple either. misspelled words, but hopefully not. Can't be perfect in everything. So no, it's, but, uh, uh, it's been really good. Yeah. On that note, should we do a little education? Absolutely, we should. Yeah. Today, we want to cover something that's, I think, one of our favorite topics right yeah. now. One of the things that we love talking about, and it's really kind of changed the way that we do medicine for a lot of people, mm-hmm. is we're talking about minute volume today. Yes, minute volume, minute ventilation, all things to encompass a good ventilator strategy. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, had a great conversation with a buddy of mine the other day talking about this same thing. Mm-hmm. He's gone through some of the same courses we went through. Yeah. And his exact words were like, how the hell did they let us do vent management? Like without this class, without this information. Yeah. Like why, why did they do that to us? How come this was never brought to us before? Yeah. And so that's what we're, what we're doing as well is making sure we get this information out there. So we're talking vent ventilator strategies and the best way to explain it, I guess, the best way that I look at it is the way that we're going to approach each patient, approach, sorry, approach each, um, how we set up the ventilator, how we do stuff for each patient isn't just based on six to eight mLs per kilogram, yeah. right? As Say far 12 as, and 500 one more time, right? <laughs> right? But I actually want to look at what is going on with my patient mm-hmm. and what are their metabolic needs. Yeah. The metabolic demand is the, I mean, like that's a big initial step to this because yep. kind of have to start approaching these patients. Like, you know, like we were taught in paramedic school, like, or like the sick or not sick or acute or not acute type thing, right? Yeah. Like you walk in, be like sick or not sick. Like, yeah. but we want to take that kind of a, a step higher and start looking at it as, as like, are they big sick? Are they medium sick? Are they little sick? Yeah. Right. And then just lump it into those, th- those kind of three categories. And then, you know, the higher the metabolic demand, the more minute ventilation we're going to need to have to support what their body is already doing without putting them in an acid-based arrangement. Correct. Which is a whole nother part of the lecture. Like we'll get to that at some point or how these two correlate. But like right now we want to focus on how we're going to not kill our patients with a ventilator. Absolutely. And it's the, I mean, like, like you said, it's one of those things that we were never taught. We were taught ventilator murder for the most part. (laughs) For sure. I mean, like we had loaded handguns called ventilators putting them on patients for the longest time. And we always wondered why, you know, we'd get to the hospital, they'd be even more sick or their acid base would be terrible and, and just all of these other things until we started learning about minute ventilation, yep. minute volume. And, you know, the biggest thing to remember is that a normal patient sitting here breathing is breathing about 90 cc's to 
you know, probably about 120 cc's per kilo of ideal body weight in minute ventilation. Yep. And I mean, like that's a normal, normal average, average everyday range. God, I can't talk today. You're good. Yeah. So that's, normal, that's normal that's everyday you and range. Me, right. That's yeah. you and me sitting here doing a podcast. Yeah. Yeah. And then as we get sicker, we can tailor this up to you know, start at 100, go to 120, go to 130, go to 140, 150 as they progressively get sicker. And start to fall in some of like the overdose categories, the metabolic derangements, the knocking on death's door type thing. Yeah. And like your post arrest, I mean, you're, you're in some of these post arrest and kids and things like that, you can be hitting upwards of 200 cc's per kilo of ideal body weight per minute. Yeah. And in kids alone, I mean, I, kids are their own category. Yeah. Right. I mean, for the most part, if I'm getting a kid, I'm starting at 200. Yeah. So, and then Neos, I mean, you may be up to 300. Yeah. I mean, it's going to be, those are one-off cases when you get into those situations, but I mean, it's not out of the realm of the possibility, right? No, absolutely not. And especially with Neos, if they're like not a sick Neo and they're already in that 250, 300 range, and then you have a super sick Neo and you're having to push, you know, these minute ventilations with respiratory rates of 60 or more. I mean, like just when we were in our PICU, like there was a kid in there on a vent with a respiratory rate of 60 to 100. It's just like, good Lord. I mean, they're getting small volumes, but I mean, like their minute ventilation was massive. It was like eight to nine liters for a, for a newborn. It's just like, (laughs) that's crazy. Like it's, it's insane. And that's our normal resting adult minute ventilation. And we don't find a way to translate these things. So in, I'll put math on the board. Yeah. Doing this stuff. But if you're listening, so when we're talking about minute ventilation, right, we're talking again, how much volume we're, we're moving in a minute. So when we say that, you know, they're at a hundred, we're going again off their ideal body weight. So a hundred mLs times they're 90. Yeah. Actually that's pretty high for ideal body weight. Say 70, right? Remember ideal body weight is how basically how big our, our lungs are going to be. Cause it doesn't matter if you're, it, it goes off height, right? Yep. If you're five... That's why I love Hamilton. Five, six, I can put their height in and it gives it. me my ideal body weight. If you're five six and your ideal body weight is, I don't know, 65 kilos, right? That's what you should be. I mean, it doesn't matter if you're 400 pounds yeah. or if you're in that range, right? That's your your chest... Your lungs don't Your lungs aren't going to get bigger, right? So ideal body weight's important with this. We're not just going off with their regular kilograms is but off of ideal body weight so what we're going to do is we're going to multiply that ideal body weight and then times whatever we think that that metabolic mean metabolic demand is yeah for these patients so again normal is about 100 so yeah no if i mean like you want to walk them through the math or yeah for sure let's keep let's keep going through the math so if they're what are we doing for ideal let's Let's see let's just make it easy let's go 70 yep do a 70 so 70, again, times 100, right? That's going to be 7,000. Yep. So you're going to have seven um, liters seven liters a minute, right? That's your ideal, um, sorry, that's your that's your minute volume that you're going to, to look for. So we have to now match our ventilation with to meet that demand. Yep. So easy way to do it for us. One of our, another strategy Another thing that we need to remember is we don't just adjust rate. Yeah. Don't just immediately move their respiratory rate to go higher. First thing we need to do is use the whole lung. So 
for me, I'm going to typically go eight mLs per kilogram for my tidal volumes. Yeah, which I love. I mean, like it takes the the guesswork out of it, right? I mean, like if you just start at eight, it falls on every single patient's from neo to adults tidal volume range. Correct. Right. So if I have eight times 70. Which is 560. Which is whatever the calculator says. 560. 560. Right. So, so now I can just divide that minute volume that I'm shooting for. So that's 7,000 divided by 560. That gives you a respiratory rate of about 12 and a half to 13. I usually round up to 13. So now, now I have my respiratory rate, right? I've gotten my tidal volume. I know what my eight mLs per kilo is, 560. Perfect. If we're shooting for that 7,000 minute volume, then again, now I have my, my respiratory rate. I don't have to guess or it's like, hmm, I wonder what, what the rate should be, Yeah. what the volume should be. We get take some of the guesswork out of yeah. it. So. And I mean, like, it's one of those things too. I mean, like, you know, we would usually come up with that, that, you know, idea or that ideal tidal volume more than anything. We'd always start tidal volume first. And then we'd be like, oh, normal person breathes about 20 times a minute. And I mean, like be completely off. Yeah. And then they would have a minute ventilation of uh, far more than they actually needed. And we would drive their CO2 down to like five. And I mean, like in some situations, like our DKAs and things like that, that's a little bit bit of a different story. But I mean, like, you know, on the everyday run of the mill thing, like, you know, we were doing more harm than good by just guessing a tidal volume and plugging in a rate and hitting go. Correct. And then we just, in the way we were taught was look at their end title, right? Yeah. We know 35 to 45, that's normal rate. So, so what do you do is you, you start them on something and then you just start adjusting that rate yeah. until you get that title volume you want, or that, sorry, end title CO2 that you wanted, mm-hmm. right? But it never works out. For me, it was always a change, changing. Yeah. You're changing it nonstop. And I was, yeah. it's one of the things that, uh, I refer to as chasing the carrot. Okay. Right? So, <laughs> all right. I mean, picture again, you put the, you have the horse or whatever, you carrot on a string in front of them so that they're always moving forward. Right. That's what, that's what I, when I'm only focused on that ETCO2 on those end title numbers, that's, I can never achieve it or get it exactly where I want it if yeah. I'm just adjusting my rate or just focused on that end title. Um, and again, that's called, that's chasing the carrot to yeah. me. So being able to, okay, now instead of just looking at the end title, but look at what's going on with your patient. How sick are they? Right. I mean, how many times do you put somebody on 14 breaths a minute and whatever, six mLs per kilo or eight mLs per kilo, right? But they're over breathing the vent the whole time. Yeah. So it's like, oh, hit them with more sedation, more sedation, more sedation. It's not the answer always. It's not always the answer. Like maybe, maybe they're breathing a little bit faster because they need more minute volume. Yeah. Right. So increasing, starting with that tidal volume, right. Mm-hmm. Making sure that you're using all of the lung is, uh, is how we're going to get there first. Yeah. It's, it, it really is. It's a huge change in what we know is normal. Right. And I think you hit the nail on the head with every point there. I mean, like, we got into this realm of just like, you know, we always change our rate first. And it's like, no, we need to change our volumes first. Start effectively ventilating these patients appropriately and allowing them to have their CO2 exchange, allowing them to onload and offload oxygen, allowing their bodies to sit in and, uh, you know, take some of the stress off of them 
So they start or they stop overbreathing that ventilator. So they get more comfortable into it. And that's the whole basis behind this. Not only that it, you know, really helps with our metabolic derangements, but I mean, like it really keeps our patients in a place where they are comfortable and a comfortable ventilator patient makes me happy. Yeah. I mean, like optimizing that, that entire lung is going to be huge because I mean, like we're always taught these numbers more than anything. I mean, like they're like, never go over this number for this and never go over this number for this. I mean, it's usually like 35 for your, uh, p- uh, your peak pressures and uh, 30 for your plats, right? Correct. And, you know, when we get into this change of using minute ventilation, you tend to see more, not higher pressures, but something that would be more normal. Like mm-hmm. we feel safe in a realm of like getting a peak of, 14 Ugh. in a plat of eight. It's just like, how adequately are we ventilating these patients at, at that not. point? Not at all. And then we start getting into this realm and we start seeing pressures in the twenties and then our plats are in the eighteens and your patients oxygenating and all these other things. We have to remember that. I mean, like you're not going to hurt rigid structures. Like your, your peak airway pressures is measuring your, your rigid airway structure. So if you have to go above that 35, to get their ventilation up, I mean, it's not going to hurt the rigid airway structures as long as your plateau pressures, your lung parenchymal pressures are within normal limits. So like there's so many things that we don't get taught in basic ventilator fundamentals. And it's one of the classes that sits on the back of my mind that we do that I would love to redo again. Oh, absolutely. Just because it's changed so much in the last, you know, year and a half, more than anything, about two years. And you know, the explanations that we're able to give are a little bit better too. So, I mean, like, you know, the, the math is there. You can't bullshit math, right? I mean, if you need to, you know, really get these patients tuned in, say we have like our, our DKA patients, one of the least favorable patient to innovate, right? Correct. Like you've got your asthmatics and your DKA patients that we don't like to innovate, but you have to do it both on, uh, to both of them at some point. Yes, you do. Like your DKA patient, they're not breathing 25 times a minute just for funsies. No, <laughs> like no, they're not. Like they're they're breathing that much for a reason. Yeah, it's keeping them alive. Yeah, they are compensating for their severe metabolic acidosis. And what do we do? What did we do in the old days going into these patients? I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> I don't want to talk about it either. But these are learning no, points. They are absolutely right. No, we've seen it and. Um, yeah, you get somebody who innovates that DKA patient and then now you're breathing back to your 12 and 500, right? You're just going to, again, help move these patients to the grave, unfortunately. Yeah. And I mean, like 12 and 500 gives you a minute ventilation of six thou- or six liters a minute. That yep. is the basic normal when these patients on their own are probably breathing you know, 11, 13, up 13, to 18 yeah. liters a minute. And we take that and cut that in half. I mean, that's ventilator murder. Yep. It's just like your sepsis patient with volume, yeah. right? And you're like, oh, let's give them a fluid bolus and you give them 250. Like that's not a fluid bolus. No. Right? These guys need 30 mLs per kilo. Yeah. So it's it's almost the same same line of thought with your, with your ventilator here. Yeah. They, they need that minute volume. Because they have such a high metabolic demand. So look at what that metabolic demand is for your patient. And it doesn't matter if it's, and you can use this for everyone. That's what I love is it doesn't matter if it's a Mm -hmm. trauma, 
an overdose, the sepsis, yeah. the cardiac arrest, whatever it is. It's right? like my last ventilator patient, um, eight or a 13 year old post arrest. Mm-hmm. I walked in and I was just like, he's not getting enough minute ventilation. Yeah. Like just right off the bat. And I looked at my partner. I was just like, Hey, like, I want to start at 150 cc's per kilo of, of ideal body weight and see where that takes us. Cause it's still titratable, right? Absolutely. Like I'm going to find that middle ground and then I can go up on my vent minute ventilation as needed. And it's just like, we get in there, you know, underventilated, still adequately oxygenating, but underventilated. ABG is not great. Change them over, get them squared away on our vent, let them sit there for a little bit, get them into this realm of like, you know, a CO2 like right at 35 and we get him to the, the receiving facility and his ABG is, you know, like almost a full point better. And, you know, his, um, his PAO2 is responding well, like all of these things are starting to look a little bit better just by us walking in and saying, Hey, you know, I'm going to put him on 150 cc's per kilo of ideal body weight. I'm going to start at eight cc's per kilo for my tidal volume and here's my rate yep. and let him sit. And I've, we made a couple little adjustments because as you know, we, we drove his CO2 a little bit low at one point, but I mean like, it's just one of those things where it's just like, okay, I'm going to back off on my volume just a little bit. Yep. And you know, as soon as we did that, it was like, I think we dropped it by like maybe 10 cc's for on our pressure control um, basically. And I think I went one point down on my, my pressure control and it was responded right back yep. and i was just like this is easy like yeah and, and keep going sorry and we were able to really fine-tune him in to the point of where you know we're still worried about that ventilator because it's the most important thing right there but i mean like we've also we were able to focus on our hemodynamics a little bit better and you know hemodynamics played a lot into that too because you know we have a post arrest with a blood pressure of 60 and it's just like you know, as soon as we started getting his blood pressures back up a little bit and getting up to where it needed to be, I mean, that CO2 started to climb. There's a whole host of things that happened very quickly. Correct. But because we had a really good ventilator strategy, we didn't have to worry about it too much because we were already set up for success from the time we walked into that door. Yep. No, absolutely. That's one of my biggest heartaches with pick on some RTs here. Yeah. Is is like hospital RTs. Um, and I know they have their own protocols and their things they do. And picking up a patient out of the ICU is a lot different than picking up a patient out of the ER. Yeah. Um, you know, vent strategies in the ICU are, I feel like, way different than they are in that emergency ER setting. Get them on the vent, make sure they're breathing, and move on. Yeah. Right. So for me, yeah, one of my biggest heartaches is every time I go to the ER is seeing that. 12 and 400 or 12 and 500. Yep. Vent it's alarms like, oh going off gosh. like crazy. Like, Well, that and it's like, okay, yeah, they're set at 12 and 500 or whatever it is, but, mm-hmm. you know, the patient's sedated, but breathing on their own and their respirator is 26 and, you know, they're doing 560s and yeah. 600s. Like, yeah, you're underventilating this patient. Like, why are you making them work? Yeah. Stop making them work harder. Yeah. On the reason vent. they failed is because <laughs> they were working harder already. Right. Like well, now they're going to work twice as hard yeah. to combat ventilator settings. So let's support them. So, I mean, one of my favorite things to do is I know they're, we're going to be taking this patient out and they're going to be putting them on a vent. It's like, 
yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna run this vent first. Yeah. Um, and again, look at what's going on with your patients. So, why don't we recap that math? Or do you want to do want to <coughs> walk through an entire patient on how we'd walk in and set up? Give you a little scenario here. Yeah, do we got time, or you want to just no, recap we have time. the math? Yeah. So we can we'll kind of recap the math and go through just a ventilator patient. Ventilator patient as seen through our eyes. Through through our eyes. Yes. Right? Don't don't forget to please follow your local protocols. But again, yes. Yeah. But I mean, like, the th- these are the, the things that we have been trained and studied on, and all of these different strategies. So, what do you want to do? What do you, you want a you want a head trauma? You want a DKA? You want an asthma? You want you know a sepsis is always a good starting point for this. Oh, I know what I was going to say. Okay, so. With this ventilator strategy, like you talked about, chasing the carrot, yeah. right? You used to always, okay, adjust your rate, and you watch that CO2 change up and down and up and down and up and down. You can't get it right. One of the my favorite things about this is when I start thinking minute ventilation, when I start from the very beginning with my patient, whatever patient it is, figure out, okay, you know, they're super sick, they're kind of sick, whatever it is. Dial in that, figure out that minute ventilation that I think they're going to need. Mm-hmm. Get it going. And it's amazing to me that now that end title is exactly where I would want it to be. Yeah. And I haven't even thought about the end title nope. as far as like that's something that I'm trying to achieve. But I try to achieve that minute ventilation. I get that going. Okay, perfect. We're in this minute ventilation range. Seem like they're doing okay. Their sats are good. Look, and their end title is usually right within that normal limit. So, yeah. It's amazing, like, yeah, how much better it is than than what we used to do. I mean, like, I hate to say, I mean, like, we were taught a terrible way to ventilate patients. We were, and you know, it's just one of those things that, as time changes, people are resistant to it because you know it's hard to teach an old dog new tricks. But we can get this through, you know, people's minds and you know howing to do this. It's going to be huge. It is, and it it truly will. It when you see it work. It's it's awesome. Yeah. It makes life so much easier. You're not fighting the vent the whole time. You're not fighting sedation the whole time. I mean, we always fight sedation. Yeah. But, you know, it's it's less about the sedation now than it was just a good vent strategy. Yeah. So. Yeah. So, uh, you know, continue to to take these things because, you know, once, like like Isaac said, once you see it actually work, like, the amount of adjustments you're going to start making on ventilators is going to drastically lower in my, my humble opinion, because I mean like just because I had to make a single setting change on, you know, my, my poster S kid, like, you know, that wasn't a bad thing. No, that was just me. Like, okay, I overshot my minute ventilation guideline here a little bit, or my minute ventilation goal. Let's back it down by 10 cc's per kilo. Yep. And voila, we were right where we needed to be, yeah. especially for a, you know, a, a head patient, you know, where it's so vital to keep that, that CO2 and that normal range more than anything. So, correct, you know, it really enables us to tailor what we need to do to our patients. Yeah. And it's just like we talked about, it's great. The, the strategy is completely different. Yeah. And focus more on, we talked about those PIPs and those P-plats. Like when I watch my P plat, like if I'm above 25, start to get when I get to, when I start to get to 25, then I start okay, let's reevaluate. Yeah, but you know, below that, I'm not worried. Yeah, 
Because, I mean, that's when you can kind of change strategies. Like, is the high yeah. volume, lower rate strategy not working just because your P plats are high? Because then, really what you can do is you can just take your minute ventilation, divide it by a more normal respiratory rate, and get a lower tidal volume but a higher rate. I mean, it's going to increase your dead space. We can combat Correct. that to a degree, especially, I mean, like with the, the Hamilton's a little bit better because, I mean, it's it uh, encompasses a lot of that dead space because of where the flow sensor is at. Correct. But I mean, like, if you have to change strategies, it's that easy. I mean, you it still is. use the same components, but now you're just taking that, oh, my P-plats are high? Cool. I'm going to shoot for a respiratory rate of 16 to get me my same minute ventilation, and it's going to calculate your tidal volume for you. Yep. Like, it's that easy. It's that easy. I mean, like, you just swap two numbers, two different places, and it's, yeah. you know... Then you can watch your P-plats come down. You just got to make sure your I to E ratios are, are set correctly. Yeah, I was that, right that's where a, I was going to go. Yeah, that's a whole other story. Whole other, I mean, like, know, we'll get into a, a full-on ventilator um, podcast, but, yeah, we, where you can get into the, your I to E ratios. Yeah. Total cycle time is life, man. Like, it is. It really, once you understand total cycle time, you understand ventilator far better than you ever imagined you could. Yep. And if you can encompass both of these strategies together, like it's huge. It is. Like I time and E time as parts and total cycle time all uh, combined together. It's massive. But let's get into a case study here. We're just going to focus on our minute ventilation for this one. So Isaac, you're going to go on a scene call via helicopter. Okay. Okay. You're going to go in for a 65-year-old female. That is, uh, you know, drowsy, hitting that non-responsiveness, you know, general malaise, been sick for a couple days. So you guys get on scene. Uh, the EMS guys, uh, you know, kind of pull up on the same, same time as you do because, you know, it's a long distance away. They had some travel time. So you guys go in and tackle this patient together a little bit and you find your patient a little bit more on the drowsy side, let's say, you know, hitting that GCS of seven, eight, and you look at her and she is just dry. Her heart rate is in the 150s, one, or like, let's say 140s, 150s. Okay. And her blood pressure's trash. Like, yeah. like straight trash. I mean, it's like 60 over, over knocking on death's doorstep. And what do you guys need to do? What, do, what's your, what's your going to be your first steps on this? And please say blood sugar. <laughs> blood sugar just kidding blood sugar is high blood sugar is high yeah not, not high we'll say like 180 okay yep not dka high not dka high gotcha no obviously we're going to look at her hemodynamics yeah right that 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 pressure of 60 is, is no bn right that's yeah. in one of those h bombs that, that hypotension um so I want. I'm gonna want to know like what has she had for volume? Yeah. What's volume at? Yeah, nothing. nothing. You guys got there at the same time as ground agency. Cool. So I mean, we're gonna start start heavy on the on the volume to start with. Okay. Right. Um. So yeah. So you guys get her tanked up, get her uh, get her hemodynamics a little bit better, but she's still not responding well. Yep. And you know, husband states that she has a history of UTIs, and uh, you know, has uh, been trying to to deal with one for the last probably about week uh, has been taking her medications, but you know, started to feel better and stopped taking her antibiotics because that's what people do these days. That's right? what they do. And so you guys electively RSI her. 
what is your strategy going into this, say, for a 30-minute flight of patient care? Your hemodynamics are fixed. All I want to hear is ventilator strategy. Yeah. Well, and on that on that hemodynamics, too, I mean, remember, we got her tanked up, but we're also, if we're going, talking RSI, we're doing stuff, um, we want to make sure, making sure, again, I've got push dose epi. I've yep. got stuff to Come keep back. those he- hemodynamics where they should be, right? Yep. If I'm going to be doing sedatives and... Um, paralytic stuff like that. I'm going to be knocking out catecholamine, so I want to make sure that we're not going to tinker yeah. again. So, but besides that, if we get her successfully our side and everything like that, ventilator strategy, that's where I'm looking. Okay, sepsis. Right? Yep. So we're going sepsis. I'm just going to start with. I don't know. I'm pick 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 something. See what she is. See what her stats were. So if I say, let's say we do 130. Yeah. Start at 130 mLs per kilo as far as minute volume goes okay right so how tall was she um let's do let's do a tall one do her six foot six foot tall man yeah so ideal body weight six foot tall is about 73 kilos okay looking at my awesome little chart that i have right so if i'm going minute volume for her um let's say if i start at eight i'm looking at 580 mls per kilo okay right so 580 mLs per kilo minute volume at 130 is going to be calculator 73 times 130. It's 9,490. Yeah, probably just rounded up to 9,500, 9.5 liters a minute. 9.5. Okay. All I'm going to do is divide that by my 580, right? And I've got a rate of 16. So, so now I have. That stuff out of the way. I yeah. know eight mLs per kilo. I know my rate. It's I'm, done. It's done. It's done. I'm going to set that. Yeah. And as she gets more comfortable, you know, you do your 15-minute ventilator reassessments, right? And you get in there. Her CO2, say, is, you know, 26. What are you going to do? If it's 26, I'm going to think, you know what? Maybe I'm hitting a little high on this. Yeah. Right? So I can start with... um if I like my rate, she's not over breathing. Mm-hmm. Paralytics have worn off or not. Probably not in 30 minutes if we're doing an RSI. But, you know, maybe I, I back that down to 15 on my on my rate and maybe go down a little bit on my uh, tidal volume. Maybe I'm going to go to 7 mLs per kilo. Yeah. Right? So 73 times 7. Right? Let's go down to, to 510. Yeah. 510 and... Went down to 15, right? So now we're back down. Now we're down to 76. Yeah. So, you know. Not a huge jump, but not a huge jump to, you know, maybe bring her, her end title back up a little bit closer to that 35 range, what we're trying to hit. Yeah. Or or I leave her rate the same. And again, I just come down on that volume just a little bit. Yeah. And and see how that goes. All yeah. Right. So, no, it's, it's a great way to just manage your patients. It's so much easier than it just takes the guessing out of it. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so let's just recap the math a little bit. We've been talking for a long time, and uh, yeah, uh, you know, let these guys have their day. So, the biggest things that we want you to take home uh, is the is the math. You know, I mean, like walk in, big sick, medium sick, little sick. Pick a, a minute vena, a minute volume strategy um, between you know ninety and two hundred for your adults. I mean, anywhere between ninety and depending on how sick your kids can be, up to three hundred cc's per kilo of ideal body yep. weight. 
usually in the realm of 100, 120, 130, 40, 50, then kind of upwards from there. And you're going to multiply your ideal body weight by your chosen cc's per kilo. So say they're, you know, 70 uh, and you want 100. So um, 70 kilos ideal body weight times 100 is a minute ventilation of 7 liters. Divide, uh, or then you get your tidal volume. 8 times 70 is, why can't I do math in my head right now? 560. It's 560. I knew that already. Um, so I do my uh, 7,000 uh, divided by my 560, and that'll give me a rate of 12-ish. 12 and a half. 12 and a half, 13. So it's super easy. takes 30 seconds to set up. The other thing that I do, you know, pre-flight, if I know I'm going to be innovating somebody, I'm going to set up multiple ventilator strategies on a piece of tape on my pant leg or something like that. Like yep. I'll have it set up for 120, 130, 140 or something like that. That way I can make those adjustments that much quicker. Absolutely. And that's one of the things, same thing with your tidal volume, right? Do a tidal volume of six, do a tidal volume of eight. Yeah. So that you have that range, yeah. you know, that you're falling within that range. That should be normal for them. You're not going to be running into high pressure, stuff like that. So just have that. So then you're able to, again, just that much more quickly make, make changes to your, to your ventilator. So. Yeah. So yeah, guys, that's it. That is our, uh, our Star Wars Reverse podcast back to lesson one. <laughs> and uh, it was fun, man. Oh, it was fun. Yeah. Hope, I enjoy uh, these things. And I hope people take things away and learn from it more than anything. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, don't forget to check us out. Find yeah. all of our stuff. You can find, like I said, our books on Amazon. Check out www.stanmathjones.com or sb4d.com. Yep. They all work. They both work. And uh, no, we look uh, forward to seeing you guys in the next one. And uh, don't forget to stand by for tones. As always, we like to stand by for those tones. So that's right. Thank you guys. Enjoy your day.